Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Well, 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 folks, uh, we just keep rolling them out, okay? We got more and more shows all the time. And uh, this week, of course, we got our weekly show of Inside Curling. Stick around. We're going to do that right now. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. The line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was... Cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Inside Curling. Of course, with our Hall of Famers, Kevin Martin and Warren Hanson. We do it each and every week. We'd like to recognize all our sponsors and thank all of them. Sports Interaction, who brings you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost. Sponsor of our email segment, Coyote Tractor, the sponsor of Hot Rock Topics and Storytime, is brought to you by Meridian and in the house by Goldline Curling Equipment. Uh, we hope you've been following us, by the way, every day since the start of the games on our daily show called The Daily Draw. It brings you up to the minute happenings with curling in Beijing, and it comes out every day around 1 p.m., and of course, we're going to keep doing that every day over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so here's what's on the show today. What's happening around the curling world? The Scotties ended. Congratulations to Team uh, Anderson. That took place in Thunder Bay. And we've been giving you daily updates, as I mentioned, uh, from the games in Beijing. And we're going to uh, get you up to date on that. Hot Rock Topics. A lot of people in our Facebook group posted concerns about the crowd and how they were reacting in the Scotties in Thunder Bay. Crowd noise normally is cool, but there was only 400 people there because of COVID. So... Uh, People got a little rowdy, and uh, not, everyone, not everyone thought it was uh, good. So we're going to discuss crowds and cheering and all that in curling. Uh, we're busy on the show today, and we're not going to have time to talk about everything. But we would like to acknowledge a great article that was written by Christina Rutherford called Rock in a Hard Place, uh, a story about what is ailing the curling world in Canada. Make sure you give it a read. Go to Sportsnet, and you can uh, check out that article. Mailbag. We keep getting a ton, and, and we love it. Keep sending them in, and we're going to take a look at an interesting one where they ask some questions about mixed doubles. In the house, one of my favorite people, uh, Joan McCusker, is going to join us and talk about everything Scotty's, uh, and we'll get her to talk about the Olympics as well. And then we have story time. Warren, you're going to take us back uh, and look at the day that you got the call, Warren, when uh, curling was going to be a metal sport. I'm sure that was big. Uh, you want to email us, you can do it, insidecurling at gmail.com. 
Okay, let's get it rolling. What's happening around the curling world brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. You got to be 19 and we want you to play responsibly. Scotty's ended this Sunday. Uh, what a week it's been so far in curling. Congratulations, Team Anderson. Uh, Warren, give us an update and your thoughts on everything that happened in Thunder Bay. Thanks, Jim. Well, Anderson and her foursome from Manitoba won their third straight Scotty's title with a 9-6 to victory over Krista McCarville of Northern Ontario, hometown of Thunder Bay, where the event was held. It was the second time that McCarville was the silver medalist at the Scotties, but this time it was, of course, in her home. Little question that Einerson was the class of the field. They went through the round robin with a perfect 8-0 record. In a normal event, page system playoff, she would have had to advance to the one-versus-one game, and win or lose would only have two wins away from the title. But the system in Thunder Bay had three teams qualify from Pool A and Pool B. In the first round, the third and second place teams played, while the first place teams got a bye. On the side where Einerson was positioned, Crawford and New Brunswick played off against Northwest Territories. New Brunswick won and went against Einerson, who, remember, was at 8-0, while Crawford was at 6-2. Crawford won the game, advanced to what would normally be the one-versus-one game, while Einerson now had to win three games in a row to be the Scottish champion. In the first game, she took out Tracy Fleury, the second Crawford, who had lost the one-versus-one game, and in the final, she defeated McCarville of Northern Ontario. The final record for, for Einerson was very convincing, 11-1, to 1, which made her the undisputed champion without question. And to give you an idea how strong that team uh, was, all four members were put on the first all-star team. So they were head and shoulders. It was somewhat of a strange Scotties with the whole COVID issue and the Olympics playing a role. Jennifer Joan wasn't, wasn't there because she was at the Olympics. Rachel Holman's team was there, but she wasn't because she was also at the Olympics. Empa Mescu Skip did it in a very admirable job, but of course it was new to her. The world number ranked team, number one ranked team, Tracy Fleury, was there, but COVID got her before the event started, so as a result, she did not play until the second Friday. And without question, that had to impact that team. But they still did pretty well, and without Fleury, they finished at the top of the A pool with a 7 1 record. If there was ever a year that the teams from provinces like New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI had a chance, this was it. And a number of them did advance to the final six in the way of the Northwest Territories, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Northern Ontario. Northern Ontario did play New Brunswick, as you mentioned, in the one versus one game. And in the end, New Brunswick finished third, got the bronze medal. McCarville, of course, second with the silver. And Anderson was the gold medal winner. Anderson will now go on to represent Canada at the Women's World in Prince George towards the end of March. And it's a very uh, worthy champion, in my opinion. Uh, Kev, Beijing! Uh, is uh, well underway. And of course, the mixed doubles started ahead of time so they can squeeze in all the curling that's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. We talk about it in our segment of Daily Draw. Uh, but Kev, uh, bring us up to speed where the mixed doubles are now and what lies ahead before they wrap it up. Been fascinating so far. Um, the curling has been excellent um, in the mixed doubles. The ice started out a little bit tough at the beginning. But since uh, Hans Ruthrich, who's the head ice maker, has done a terrific job, there's been far more plus 90% games. Uh, last time in Pyeongchang, the ice was good. Uh, John Morris was the only player to get over 90%. He managed to do it twice in the entire event. It's been continual, people, over 90% this time in Beijing. So uh, ice has been fantastic. The uh, I guess the biggest story of the mixed doubles so far has been Canada not making the playoffs. 
that's just massive. Um, I know everybody's talking about the last game and the last shot of Rachel's where it just slid an eighth of an inch or, or a maximum an eighth of an inch heavy. But I, I look at it more of the Australia game. You have to beat the teams you need to beat, the ones that aren't going to make the playoffs. Italy, they're good. You can't count on that. You've got to beat Australia. Had Canada beaten Australia, they're in the playoffs and battling out for a medal. So that's where I see it. The other story, I'm not sure if it's bigger or smaller, is Stefania Constantini. Wow, has she been amazing. 22 years old, out of Italy, um, not a household name in our sport. She is now, but she wasn't at the start. Um, her and her partner, Amash uh, Mushana, he, uh, he's a fantastic player, but she's been the story. In curling, you need to make certain shots to win big things. Well, she's made everything that has been necessary so far. In the uh, first playoff game today against Sweden, actually had to play an intern draw freeze against two in the forefoot in the second end um, to keep the game close. They were really in trouble. They couldn't afford to hit, so they had to draw. And she put a freeze, if you can imagine, on the pinhole, against the side of the rock in the forefoot, straight in front of the one behind it. And Almeida Develle, the uh, the last thrower for Sweden, had no shot. They had no shot. So she, they went from licking their chops, thinking they're going to get three against Italy and get a big lead, to looking at it afterwards and going, wow, I, I don't think we can score. So that's what she's been doing to the competition so far. And we'll see. They're in the gold medal game against Norway. And we'll see what happens. Norway, of course, very strong as well. Kristen Skazian and uh, Negergotten, that very good team. Bronze game uh, will be Bruce Mount, Jennifer Dodds, and, of course, Sweden. I just talked about losing to Italy. Really looking forward to these games. I think it's huge for our sport of curling, having Italy play Norway in a gold medal game. You know, if it was Sweden against Canada, everybody going, well, that's expected. You know, that's no big deal. This is a big deal to have Italy in the final against Norway. A lot of nations are going to look at this going, you know what? We need to put some money into curling. We've got a chance to get on the podium in mixed doubles. So I think it's really exciting times. So there we go. Uh, that's our wrap on the, uh, our, you know, the Olympics going into the playoffs. So we'll keep watching. Thanks a lot, Kevin, for that. Hot Rock Topics, which is a hot one this week because a lot of people are hot under the collar. It's brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Rad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. So at the Scotties uh, on the final weekend in Thunder Bay, uh, Curling Canada allowed a number of local volunteers and school kids uh, into the arena. It looked like it was about 400. A number of people in our Facebook group were not very happy at all with some of the comments and response made by the crowd uh, to and about the opposing team when the local McCarville team was on the ice cheering missed shots and all sorts of other things, which you normally wouldn't hear, okay, but the crowd was so small uh, that you could. So how should a spectator react at a curling game? Is the uh, You know, what should be their etiquette and how should fans conduct themselves at a curling game? Warren, you had a look after how, how big crowds were handled at major curling events for many years. What did you think of what happened this week in Thunder Bay? Yeah, this is a hot topic. This is one that uh, we've always been concerned with back when I was running big events where we had 12, 14, 15,000 people in the building. And it was only a major concern when you got down to the single games, 
when there's only two teams on the ice and they're down towards the end of the game and the player settles in the hack and you've got 15,000 people in the building, you can hear a pin drop. And I was always saying, oh, my God, my God, don't anybody scream, don't anybody yell, don't anybody, because what are you going to do? And uh, it was certainly a very large degree uncontrollable. Um, and I can give my own experience. I think curlers over time, certainly from my era, we, we didn't play in front of big audiences and arenas a lot. We did a bit, but not a lot. So you're usually playing in a curling club. So you're not next to the fans. Upstairs, the lounge might be full. Someone might rap on the glass on occasion, but it's still pretty quiet. And uh, we went into a world championship in Switzerland in Bern when curling was still relatively new there. And a young Swiss team, Adiger, was expected to do very well. And uh, they, of course, knew to win they're going to have to beat Canada. So we go out to play them in the round robin. And we're thinking, you know, there was about 3,000 Canadians over there. Oh, there may be 5,000 people in the building. We go in the building, and it was the largest crowd to ever watch a curling event until 1997 in Calgary when Kevin was in the briar. And uh, so we've got these 12,000 Swiss in the building who knew nothing about curling, and most of them had cowbells. And, and so every time we missed a shot, it was a standing ovation plus uh, the cowbells <laughs> ringing. I heard cowbells for six months afterwards. And we were in shock because this was totally foreign to us, something we weren't accustomed to at all. It was very unnerving. And so my point is, I think if we look at sports like basketball, where people try to distract the three throws, uh, football, the crowd tries to make it so loud that the other team can't call the signals, that's all accepted as being part of those games. And I think whatever becomes the accepted norm, athletes will adjust to it if they have to deal with it every day. But when it's suddenly thrown at you, I think it's very difficult to deal with. And Kevin played in the Olympics in Vancouver in 2010. That building was really loud, a lot of cheering, yelling which I think is great. I think the cheering and the yelling and having a good time, not so sure about the the booing and the trying to distract uh, you when you're trying to throw or things of that nature. But I think it's something, again, curling's got to get its head around as we start to grow. And it's got to become a solid written rule of etiquette that when you go in a building, this is what you do and can't do. And it's got to be uh, enforced and, and abided by. Kev, did you ever get ripped uh, by a crowd member that you took exception to and uh, you've seen people get kicked out of games if the players hear, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of negative comments. How, how about you? Anyone ever carve you up? Oh, certainly. But um, but but not nothing that uh, would would interrupt the game. You know, where we had to have the person removed or anything. I don't remember ever having that. Uh, for the most part, curling fans are really good. Like they're really good. They're knowledgeable, and the etiquette's there. It's just sometimes, you know, you get people in the building that don't really know the sport and it gets out of hand, but not bad. But I think as our sport grows, we keep talking about as the sport grows and as, as it's evolving and growing so fast worldwide right now, these are things we need to consider. These are things that we have to deal with. They can't be ignored. And somehow we just have to get that, get the groups together to, to figure out a rule book for the players, but also for the fans. Uh, very good. Thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor who brings us hot rock topics uh, each and every week. Uh, we appreciate them, and we invite you to support uh, Coyote and all our sponsors. Time for Mailbag, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost, convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. We got an email from Randy Lintz talking about uh, mixed doubles. Hey, guys, love these Olympic update shows. What do you guys think of a mixed doubles tour in Canada to run alongside the WCT? I think looking at other countries and their performance compared to WCT players, that maybe the idea for Canada is to have players decide whether they want to play four-person or two-person. 
Team dynamics, plus the fact that some curlers in four-person are so dependent on their sweepers, Canada needs to play this discipline more to get to the top of the podium more. We should be thankful that our four-person players are so good that they can step in to play this at a high level, but it is a totally different game overall. The Lot uh, Shahadic team is a good example of a team who really dominate the world if that was all they played. That's from Randy Lintz. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Kev? A couple of things. First, I thank you very much for sending in that that email. I appreciate it. Um, the first thing, I guess, with mixed doubles, you're talking about dedicated players, and I think that's discussion that we can probably have. Having events, I, I totally agree with that. Having events, maybe shoulder programming to the World Curling Tour events, big events, Grand Slams. Have a mixed doubles event just before or just after. Because otherwise, it gets so expensive, all the travel. So that's a really good idea to have. If there's a big tour event in some city, right before it or after it, you have a mixed doubles event. And that way, the players are already there. So then they, they play with their four-person team. And then they also play the mixed doubles at the same time because you're there, and a lot of the top players do both. So I, I certainly think that's a good idea. I don't think the idea of having the dedicated player is going to be accepted anytime soon because you only have certain top players in any sport in any nation. You can't just decide, oh, I'm going to be a specialist, I'm going to get good at something. But if you're not that level of athlete, it it can't happen. And the very best curlers right now make their money off of four-person curling, period. That is the way it is. The top players are going to play four-person curling. That's just the way it is. And if you want your best players to play mixed doubles – because that's the only way you're going to win when you've got Bruce Mowat, you've got Oscar Erickson, you've got Jennifer Dodds, you've got these tremendous curlers playing both. Well, we have to play both. And so you're right. I think he's, I think Randy's right with just having uh, mixed doubles events, shoulder programmed against big events in four person. And that way you get the best of both worlds. And that way we get better at mixed doubles. And then over time, when television does grab onto mixed doubles more and more so that there's sponsorship dollars attached, then there may be, but that's, that's quite a few years down the road. I think it also means that on four person curling is going to maybe become five person curling because I think with these top teams, they're going to have to work towards having five player teams. And I know that's an issue primarily from the cost point of view, because now they've got to start sharing prize money and everything five ways rather than four. But I think somehow this has got to be figured out because if you're going to start having a lot of these top players going four person or five person and uh, and doubles, um, I think there's going to have to be in some cases overlap and maybe there's got to be another player that can be brought in on occasion on a four, four person team or on a regular basis. So I think, again, it's one of these things that requires some huge coordination. I think the mixed double circuit needs to be developed in Canada. It's right now more or less non-existent, but I think Again, Curling Canada needs to work with the various bodies to try and make this happen. I think the World Curling Federation needs to get involved. There is a pretty good tour at the moment, if I'm not mistaken, Kevin, in Europe. And I think maybe that starts to be the backbone or the basis of what they can do going forward. And it needs to be a coordinated effort between North America and Europe, as a lot of these other events are becoming. And again, don't forget Asia, because it's certainly starting to move there. Uh, Thanks a lot to uh, Randy for his email. If we read your email on the show... You will, in fact, win something, uh, uh, an electronic version of Warren's new book, Sticks and Stones, which is the story of how curling became an Olympic sport. Uh, Very cool, Warren. Congratulations, Randy. Uh, We will be sending you the code uh, through email shortly. Um, When we come back in the house, 
is back on. We're going to talk to Joan McCusker. That noise you're hearing can only mean one thing. It's our segment of In the House brought to you by Goldline Curling. Goldline Curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. What a week this has been. Uh, we got to talk about it. The Scotties. Happened this week, and who better? Uh, one of my favorite people. One of the most lively people I know and most fun is Joan McCusker, uh, three-time Scottish champ and, of course, Olympic gold medalist. And Joan joins us right now. Come on in, Joan. Sit down. we got a lot to talk about. How are you? I'm great, Jimmy. Really glad to be on again today. Like you said, one of the people who loves curling, uh, that's me. I could just watch and watch and watch. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, so Olympics and Scotties, uh, um, you know, talk about the Scotties. What, what do you bring away from it this week, Joan? Well, what an amazing performance by, uh, team Anerson. You know, you take a look at the, the all stars, all four of them head and shoulders above the rest of the field. And, uh, they, they had a lot of games that they were just so precise, so ready to showcase and get back to worlds that it did seem a little bit inevitable that they were going to come out of that final and uh, three-peat as Canadian champions and and have a chance to get finally back to Prince George where it all started for them two years ago when when COVID cancelled that event and uh, they, they got a chance to to get back to world so that's a that's a pretty great story. Uh, and what about the Olympics Joan? A crazy week uh, Canada yikes. Ugh. Yeah, that's mixed doubles for you, Jim. Uh, it's, it's up, it's down, it's all around. Uh, there is no guarantees with uh, mixed doubles. It's just such a volatile event. And maybe that's why it's so fun to watch because you really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, definitely some uh, tr- tremendous, uh, shots that were made. Uh, but unfortunately for Canada, they, they struggled. They were on and they were off. They took turns. In terms of their struggles, John Morris was off at the beginning of the week, and then it was it was Rachel that was uh, struggling with draw weight during the end. And what a heartbreak, an absolute heartbreak of a last shot in the eighth and in the extra end of their must-win round-robin game. So, like, lots of mistakes. You didn't want to be in that position to be must-win at the end of the week. And uh, that uh, those... Big draw that was missed in the eighth end for for Rachel looked like a, a real killer for their momentum and uh, and the line call on the extra end. Oh, poor! My heart goes out to them. It's uh, it's a tremendously difficult event, and it's too bad that they they were not able to advance. We suffered with them right after. It was kind of this ninety seconds where they had the camera on the two of them. Uh, and this blank stare by uh, Rachel and Johnny, you know, came up and put his arm around her. What do you think she thinks of right away after that, Joan? I mean, it's just such a miserable feeling. But can you take us inside her head, do you think? Oh, I think anybody, any competitive curler, uh, you want to win and, and you want to show your best. And when you miss a shot that you should have made, you're horrified. You're, it's, you're devastated and then you're embarrassed 
and then you're full of regret and you just wish you could do it all over again. And so my heart went out to those two as well. They were putting on a little bit of a brave face just to to stay upright, I think, in that uh, media scrum and, and not break down completely in tears. But I am sure there were lots of tears afterwards. Um, and like I said, anybody that curls really felt for them in that moment and had had empathy for how hard they tried and it didn't work out. They missed by an eighth of an inch. And that's uh, that's a terrible feeling, but that's sport. That's that's curling for you. And there were many misses along the way that week to get them into that position where they had to win. Whoa, where do we start, Joan? Huh? This has been quite a week for <laughs> for people that like you and I having a glass of wine talking about curling all the time. Where do we start? We'll start the Scotties. Let's start talk about the Scotties because this was a weird one when you've got Nova Scotia, Northern Ontario, and uh, and Kerry Anderson in the playoffs. That's different. You know, your thoughts on that, because that was kind of cool. Oh, I think this was the coming out party for Andrea Crawford. Remember years ago that uh, Val Sweeting tried to recruit Andrea Crawford to fill in for her team when Joanne Courtney was recruited to Holman's team. Everybody knew that Andrea Crawford was a shot maker and it didn't work out that particular time. Andrea was not willing to do the kind of traveling that was required if you were going to join a team from Alberta and you lived in New Brunswick. Uh, so we all knew that she was a great player, but who knew that this foursome would be able to perform under pressure? I think that's the biggest surprise, pleasant surprise out of this uh, Scotties is how good that team was. That was really, really fun to watch. It was not a fluke. They played fantastic. So that was interesting. The other uh, couple of points that was was uh, interesting is I was wondering how Emma Miskew would do as a skip. And I counted on when I was making my picks for the Scotties. I did count on her um, coming up big and, and filling in that position pretty quickly. And maybe that was unrealistic of me. <laughs> to think that that might happen because I really thought that uh, uh, I was surprised that they lost a couple of games early and didn't make the playoff round. I really did. Um, and poor Tracy Flurry. There's another heartbreaking story. If you want to talk about a heartbreaking story, Tracy Flurry, not able to, to make that first week because of testing positive and then comes back and everybody thought, oh, okay, your team Flurry did well without her, did great. Selena, you know, rose to the challenge as third to call that game. And I thought, okay, here we go. Here we go. Flurry's going to really um, pick up the play. But she was not able to find her game. And that was the bottom line. Just couldn't find her flow that late in the in the event to compete against that uh, juggernaut, which is Team Canada and Carrie Anderson. So that was a surprise too. So that opened the door, right? The seas parted for Northern Ontario in their very consistent way to just keep chugging along and get the momentum of the crowd when they brought the crowd back in. Wasn't that exciting? And you got the the crowd cheering them on uh, to keep going and make it through that uh, one versus two game and get the bottom of the final. Like, what excitement at the end of that, Scotties. When it comes to uh, Crawford, yes, very good. And I do remember when uh, when she was thinking about coming out to uh, to Edmonton, playing out of the Savile Sports Center. That's a long time ago now. <laughs> Actually, that's quite a few years ago. But I, I'm not sure if they expected to be so successful, but they were. So now what do you do as a team like that? 
you you've proven okay we can play this game do you start traveling and 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 playing more or do you just go well that was good and let it ro- let it rest what do you what do you think they're going to do well it's funny that you should say that because this is the end of the quadrennial or the beginning of the next quadrennial and i wondered if the phone might ring for andrea crawford for teams that are building for the next olympic run because she really showed that she could perform under pressure and so she might have some choices to make and that is just as you pointed out do they just continue to stay at home the the mccarvel model is what we're going to call it where you don't travel to play but you practice six times a week they practice six times a week uh it's it's unheard of Uh, do you take that because they have four people that are on the right seats on the bus they have four people that are in the right position and and playing as well as they can do you just stick with that model stay at home i think they might adopt uh, a bit of a a hybrid model where they go out and get some sponsorship and travel to Eastern Canada, the Toronto area, uh, you know, that stay in the Maritimes, but get to those Stucels and the Oakvilles and and those Spiels that you can get some really good competition in that Toronto area and just up their game a little bit that way and get that kind of experience. Or of course, like the third idea is uh, she might get a call to be the import to another team. So I'm curious. We'll give it a couple months before we can dig out that story. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting this year when uh, once everything ends, we we get done the Players' Championship, Champions Cup, and the phone lines are going to be burning up (laughs) across the country. I think they are already, Kevin, because uh, for women's curling, uh, this, this is the Scotties. <laughs> this is our national championship. So season is over for many, many teams. So this is again developing into uh, a really interesting situation as we look at the whole scenario of curling in Canada at the high performance level. And we're still moving along here with more or less this model that was developed, I guess, started in 1927 with all this interprovincial representation. And with team like Crawford and in particular her in 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 particular, um, I always wonder. I mean, she's very good, but has she got the chance that she needs to advance forward by playing in New Brunswick and not touring at all? Um, just not having an opportunity to develop. I look at McCarvel as being a good example. I watched them yesterday. I thought, man, that team is close. They've always been close, but they they need to play more. They need to be focused more. But they but they have other lives. Uh, versus the people that are primarily on the tour end of things. You take a look at the Anderson team. They're dedicated. They're devoted to to the sport of curling, and, and that's where their main focus is, and, and you can tell it when they get to that level. So I'm not sure what the solution is moving forward here as to how this country can bring all its best players to a point where they all have an opportunity to, to compete and that we develop the best possible teams that we can moving forward. It's um, it's a confusing situation right now, and I'm not even sure what the solution is, but I think the old model is broken, but I'm not totally sure how we fix it. What are your thoughts about it all? I think you were very uh, careful and very tactic, tactfully explaining that we love provincial rivalry, but are we getting our best teams? <laughs> we love the traditions of the Scotties and the excitement, but are the best dozen teams at the Scotties? I, I kind of like the idea of uh, the A pool, B pool. If you take a Scotties that you've got 
you've got a way for wild cards to get directly in to that top A pool. And you've got a B pool of teams that, uh, that compete amongst themselves. And if you rise to the B, you can, you can get into the A. That, that's maybe one way of looking at it and maintaining the tradition of the Scotties. Uh, but you're right. <laughs> Is this the best way to, to guarantee the best team in Canada represents Canada at the Worlds? Probably not. Let's talk about mixed doubles because I think to some degree it's got the same type of uh, problem in Canada. Canada still really hasn't embraced this sport fully, I don't think, yet the rest of the world has. And it's another thing that I really think we have to somehow develop better. What, do, what are your thoughts on that one? And do you think that people should be dedicating themselves to mixed doubles or should they maybe be trying to uh, play both four-person and mixed doubles and then we need to work out scheduling that allows that? What do you think? Well, that's a that's also a really good question, um, you know, once again, you, you can never have a grassroots program that is successful that is in the same program as a high performance. You know, if we, if we want the very best, we want the best curlers to play mixed doubles. And we've shown that that experiment, experiment means that those players need to play four person curling to get good. So, you know, do I think that there, it's a great place to develop curlers in mixed doubles, a, a, a solitary, circuit by itself i do i do think that that's needed across canada i think there's enough there's enough players that could play in that circuit and get a lot of experience so grassroots wise i think it's really important to develop mixed uh, doubles high performance wise i'm not sure that would change who would represent canada at the olympics at, at mixed doubles I think your your best players will come from the four person team because they have an opportunity to develop those skills that are required for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you're you're right, Joan, because uh, the four person curling game is the one that's marketed the most, which means the corporate dollars are behind the four person team. So there's, your top players aren't going to. There's no way they're going to pick mixed doubles for the next bunch of years until there gets to be enough sponsorship money in mixed doubles to warrant a top player to go that way. It make it would make no financial sense. Right now, your business model is is with the four-person team, both men and women. The top teams can can be on TV a lot, can, can bring in quite a lot of advertising dollars. Whereas a mixed doubles team, there's not a lot of television. So I think you're right, Joan, that uh, there's definitely, your mixed doubles team has to come out of the four-person team because your top players are never going to only play mixed doubles. There's no money in it. It's just simple math. There's a lot of skill building that needs to happen. I think for a, a good mixed doubles player needs to build skills in the four person team. They need to figure out the sweeping skills, the communication skills, the throwing under pressure, the all, and then bring that to mixed doubles. Uh, Joan, this has been terrific. I, I'm sure when you uh, think about the Olympics, uh, of course, what you're on right now, it must, it must bring back tremendous, tremendous memories for you as an Olympian. Um, do you still have game? Do you curl? Are you active still curling? <laughs> I have not curled. On, like I've been on the ice a lot this year as a coach with uh, Team Scheidegger. And uh, so I've been, I've been standing on the ice, Jimmy. I move rocks around a lot and I throw <laughs> a lot of rocks from the, uh, from the hog line in, you know, where I'm playing against the team. But, you know, am I good enough to throw from the other end and get them to go where they want to go? Uh, not against that team, that's for sure. So I haven't played much this year because of my commitment 
to Team Scheidegger because uh, it was a very big one this year. And I think my quality uh, of play is similar to what we saw last weekend. Uh, there was an outdoor skins game here at Mosaic Stadium between Kevin Cooey and Matt Dunstone. And they played outdoors on natural ice uh, that was made on top of the football field in uh, at Mosaic Stadium. And what a hilarious display that was. Took them about three ends before they started to make some shots. Uh, and then they did. And that was fun. And there was a lot of falling down. So that's probably about the level that I'm at right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, thanks a million for coming on. I love, we love hearing your commentate. You do such a great job and, uh, we look forward to getting you on again soon. Take it easy, Joan. Kevin, you must be just working night and day. You're doing these, these podcasts as well as all of this other stuff. What the heck? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's not much sleep being had. I was going to say, are you getting any sleep? Yeah. That is, <laughs> you used to make fun of us for not getting sleep. That's you now. That's me now. Yeah, you got it. But anyway, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. What the heck? And he gets paid $1.5 a week, <laughs> Joan. So he'll, he'll forego the sleep, okay? If only that were the, the situation. If that were true, right? If that oh, were true. If only that were true. I know how much it's worth. It's okay. You go, boy. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Okay, it's time to get on to story time. But before we do that, Warren, I'm laughing. Uh, when you were reading, talking about the piece in Thunder Bay with the loud crowd noises, we went to get Kevin's reaction. He said, I don't know. I didn't hear the first half of that. <laughs> <laughs> I fell asleep. Uh, poor, poor Kevin's had about 15 minutes sleep in the last week. Anyway, we carry on uh, each and every week. Uh, we bring to you story time. It's brought to you by... Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Uh, Warren, I know one of the biggest phone calls you ever got, uh, you and Kevin, is when I returned your phone call to say I would host the show. That must have been a huge day for you. I'm, I can only imagine how it made you feel. But uh, when you got the Olympics uh, to accept curling, uh, originally in a, a demonstration sport, in Calgary in 1988. It wasn't a phone call, Warren, that you got when they said it would be a medal sport. Tell us about that, uh, that moment when you found out that curling was going to be in the Olympics. Yeah, I think it's interesting for us to talk about it this time because the Olympics is on and curling has kind of become a staple of it. And the day that I found out it was actually going to happen and how it happened, and this is interesting because our process started back in 1983, Ray Kingsmith and I took on the challenge of trying to get curling into Calgary at the 88 Games as a demonstration sport. And for the next uh, number of years, I guess it would be nine, there was a struggle took place to try and get the IOC to accept it. And by the time we hit 1992, prior to the Olympics in Barcelona, the Summer Games, it wasn't looking very good for us. So what I want to do is, from my, from my book, I want to read some captions as to what actually happened uh, in those days in July of 1992, and where I was and how it happened when I actually found out that uh, it had succeeded. So I'm going to read a bit here from what I've actually written in the book. So on July 17, 1992, the Program Commission Chair, Vitaly Shmirnov, met with the Executive Committee of the IOC 
to put forth a recommendation of the acceptance of women's ice hockey. Now listen to that one, women's ice hockey, but the rejection of curling for the third time. And one of the big issues here was the fact that women's ice hockey only had about seven nations and curling had worked their butt off uh, to get to 25 countries. That was the reason they had originally said it was rejected. So no one will ever know for sure what went on in the mind of President Juan Antonio Samaranch, except he stood up and suggested to Shmurnoff they should go back and reconsider the rejection of curling. And, and this becomes interesting because uh, we had very much, I had engaged the Japanese in this whole project back in the 80s. And I had been over there uh, three times uh, doing some teaching. And uh, we had very much uh, been able to get our foot into the door there into the right direction. And as a result, the Japanese had bought into the fact, particularly when Nagano got the, the games for 1998, they wanted curling to be there played for the first time. So the book goes on to say the Japanese lobby had apparently been very clear about Nagano wanting curling to be part of the 1998 program, but would have trouble accommodating women's hockey. They felt they didn't have a facility for it. But no, no, no one ever knew for sure. The rumor mill said the Japanese lobby suggested it would only be prepared to accommodate women's ice hockey at the 98 games if curling were also brought in as part of the medal program. So we then go on to July 18th. That was the following day that they actually had the meeting between the program commission and the executive. And we didn't know what had happened, and we didn't expect to hear for a while. So in the book, again, it was July 18th, 1992. It was an average Saturday morning for me, which found myself found me down by Jericho Beach, close to my home, reading the morning paper. I was certainly aware of the meeting of the IOC executive that had taken place in Barcelona, Spain on the 17th, at which time the future probability for all time of curling becoming a mental middle sport would be determined, and I wasn't confident. However, I did not expect to hear the official results until a General Assembly meeting of the IOC on July 22nd. Nevertheless, I was very hopeful because I knew the Program Commission was not going to recommend the acceptance. I wasn't very hopeful of curling for the third time. I came to the sports section and started to scan the second page. Headline caught my eye, Canada's metal hopes improve with new events. I zeroed in on the story, and for the first time that jumped out was the inclusion of two more short track events for 94. What I expected in the next paragraph was the usual, but curling didn't make it. Again. I couldn't believe my eyes when the next paragraph read, Curling was also granted full medal status, and will be included by 2002 at the latest. If a rink is built in Little Hammer in 1992, it will be accepted then, and possibly also in Nagano in 98. Emotion came over my whole body that was somewhere between disbelief and great joy. This was unbelievable. In the latter part of June, I knew the program commission had for the third time failed to provide a positive recommendation for curling. But it appeared that the plea by the number of people, and in particular the Japanese Olympic Committee and the Nagano Organizing Committee, had changed the view of the IOC executive. I immediately thought of Ray Kingsmith and how proud he would be <clears throat> that we'd finally been accomplished from our humble beginnings way back in 1983. It was a tender moment, <clears throat> knowing not, none of this would have ever happened without Ray and the initiative he took in 1993 with the Calgary Organizing Committee to get the sport into 1998. But the official announcement at Barcelona in the 19th session of the IOC General Assembly read as follows. Men and women's curling will definitely be included on the program of the Olympic Games in 2002, and negotiations will be undertaken with the Nagano Organizing Committee to stage the sport in 1998. 1998. As well, since Nagano people, along with all the 1988 1998 bidding cities had promised to include curling even before they won the right to host the games, meant curling would definitely be the sport in 1998. Of course, Nagano was going to make it happen because it was Japan who had made the final desperate plea to the executive committee 
for curling to have medal status for 1998. Nogana did not have the facilities required, but the neighboring city of Karazawa was dying to host something Olympic and already had a curling facility. And interesting enough, on my second trip to Japan in 1987, Russ Howard and I directed a clinic at Karazawa. Fantastic, Warren. Uh, gives a guy a little shiver, I'm sure, uh, when you were reading that. Uh, uh, and what a great day it must have been for you. Congratulations. And look where curling is now at the Olympics. Uh, well done. Thank you very much uh, to Nestle Boost for sponsoring Storytime. We really appreciate that. And what a great story that was. Uh, okay, boys. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, great show. We, uh, Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs all over the world. If you want to do a Zoom meeting with us, uh, reach out, get a hold of us. We've done a, uh, several of these up to now, and we'll uh, get on with uh, your club for an hour or so. Uh, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Also, Rod Paulson has been handling our Facebook page and uh, the ever-growing Facebook group that we have. Uh, it's lively. Check it out uh, and maybe join up uh, if you haven't yet. Reminder again, if you want to email us, you can do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. Warren, that was a great couple of pages that you read out of your book. And uh, it's out now, Sticks and Stones. It's available at all the major bookstores uh, and online. Uh, if you'd like a copy of that book, check it out. Finally, a reminder, we've started doing this uh, since the beginning of February. Uh, it's a segment we call Daily Draw, which we come on every day about 1 o'clock Eastern, talking about all things at the Beijing Games. And uh, it's been very popular, and we're going to continue to do it over the next couple of weeks. Again, that's about 1 p.m. Eastern every day. Okay, fella, Kevin, you still awake? Kev, Kev, get up. Kev? I'm with you. I'm with you, Jimmy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Kevin, and thanks a lot, Warren. Uh, you've been listening to another episode of Inside Girl. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs>